Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast. It is me, Jim Hill. Mr. Testa is, as they say, on the wing. Having spent his Thanksgiving out on the West Coast, Len is attempting on the busiest travel day of the year, mind you, to get back home. So please keep Len in your thoughts and prayers today, because I suspect that Mr. Testa is going to need them. Mind you, I'll be hitting the road tomorrow. I'm flying down to Orlando to join Jim Shul and Len, where we'll be shooting some stuff for Season 2 of Disney Unpacked, as well as taking part in the third annual Ginger Snap Challenge. More on that later on in today's show. But as you probably already guessed, this is going to be a solo show today. Sorry to disappoint all you Lentesta fans out there, though here's an interesting thought. What do Lentesta fans actually call themselves? Uh, uh, Testimonials? If that's not a thing, let's make that a thing. Anyway, this is our show for the week of Schmerzday, November 27th. Happy Cyber Monday for all of you bargain shoppers out there. And speaking of shopping, did you know that in addition to the Lime Garage, the Orange Garage, and the Grapefruit Garage, Disney Springs has two fruit-themed old-fashioned flat parking lots, the Strawberry Parking Lot and the Watermelon Parking Lot. And thanks to new subscribers like Jonathan Edwarb, Alicia Von Kugelgen, and Jennifer Stewart, as well as longtime subscribers Mouseketeer1978, Dylan, and Sean Canto, Disney Springs is now focus grouping possible names for its next massive parking structure. And among the names that are supposedly being considered are the Kiwi, the Kumquat, and the Korean Pear. True story. Anyway, uh, also just a reminder here that we are moving Disney Dish off of Bandcamp and onto Patreon beginning on January 1st, 2024. And just so you know... The third episode of Disney Unpacked, our new video series with veteran Imagineer Jim Shule, debuts on Sunday, December 3rd, and this one shines a spotlight on the development and the construction of Disney MGM Studio Theme Park. Mr. Shule shares a lot of great behind-the-scenes stories on that project, not to mention some amazing imagery, so be sure and check that out. Okay, now the news. And the news portion of today's show is sponsored by Touring Plan's own travel agency. These obviously knowledgeable folks can help you plan your next trip. Plus, it comes with a free Touring Plan subscription. So please check them out at touringplans.com backslash dish. Okay, on the last edition of this podcast, Chrissy Harrison joined us to talk about Jollywood Nights the new seasonal hard ticket at Disney's Hollywood Studios. Uh, Chrissy was there on November 11th for the very first edition of Jollywood Nights, which, if you listened to that episode of Disney Dish and heard what Miss Harrison had to say about the seasonal hard ticket, well, it was obvious that Chrissy, along with a whole lot of other folks, found Jollywood Nights kind of wanting. But the good news is, Disney Parks, Products and Experience, was paying attention to what was being said about the studio's new seasonal hard ticket, and by the time the second Jollywood Nights rolled around on Saturday, November 18th, they had made some adjustments, doing everything like giving party attendees additional places where they could check in, pick up their wristbands, to trotting out additional characters. Folks who went on to the second Jollywood Nights got to interact with Santa Duffy, uh, Jiminy Cricket, and his... Mickey's Christmas Carol outfit, as well as a holiday-themed Pinocchio. Uh, Likewise, Santa Stitch, Snow White and Dopey, and even Mary Poppins with a penguin waiter. 
This is in addition to the Hollywood Bedeck 5 Fab 5 plus the Finis and Ferb and Powerline Max that had been available for guests to get their photos taken with uh, at the inaugural Jollywood Nights. So hopefully all of these additional characters help to address the slow moving lines when it came to the character meet and greets and, you know, God hopes that somebody also <laughs> made the, these party attendees aware that Frozone, you know, poor Frozone, all by himself back there in Pixar Place. Maybe they sent, you know, some folks back there. What's nice about this is, it, given that, that Jollywood Nights is only a four-hour-long party, look, nobody wants to waste a third of that time standing in line to get a picture taken with a rare Disney character. So more characters available to interact with guests meant shorter lines. They also changed the check-in procedure for the jazzy holidays at uh, the Brown Derby uh, aspect of this event, which really went sideways at the very first edition of Jollywood Nights. And uh, there was a third Jollywood Nights held on Monday, November 20th. And the consensus at that time was, again, while improvements have been made to the seasonal hard ticket since the disastrous debut— it's still not on a par with, with Mickey's Very Merry Christmas Party. But then again, how could it be? You know, the first edition of that Magic Kingdom seasonal hard ticket was held back in 1983, which makes Mickey's Very Merry 40 years old this year. So they've had four decades to work out the kinks. Whereas Jollywood Nights, again, the fourth of these seasonal hard tickets will be presented on the night that this podcast goes live, Monday, November 27th. And for what I've been told, given that only 10 Jollywood Nights are scheduled for its inaugural season, and with tickets still available for seven of those hard ticket events, uh, the Walt Disney World Resort is only willing to throw so much money at, at Jollywood Nights in an effort to make this After Hours event seem like a more of a worthwhile investment for guests. And and, and, and again, depending on what night you purchase tickets to, getting access to Jollywood Nights, which again only runs four hours, 8.30 to 12.30, that can run you $159 or up to $179. Len, Jim Shul, and I, along with a bunch of other folks who are taking part in this year's Ginger Snap Challenge, will be attending the fifth edition of this year's Jollywood Nights, and we will give you our own impressions of the seasonal hard ticket on the next edition of Disney Dish. Here's hoping that they continue to make tweaks and changes, because there's clearly an appetite out there for a second Christmas-themed hard ticket at the Walt Disney World Resort. I mean, you only have to look at Mickey's Very Merry Christmas Party for 2023 being presented at the Magic Kingdom 25 times this year. And uh, that's on select nights between November 9th and December 22nd. And of those nights, 22 of them are already completely sold out. And speaking of seasonal stuff, this is the time of year when the Santa Anas really begin to blow out in Southern California. And the folks at John Wayne Airport, uh, just down the street from Disneyland, clocked gusts as, as high as 48 miles per hour early this week, which most likely contributed to a light pole toppling over in Town Square at Disneyland Park, Anaheim, on Monday, November 20th. This happened around 8.30 a.m., just after park opening, and, and three folks were injured. The most severely injured individual, an elderly woman, 
being taken to a local hospital for treatment of a head injury. Now, initial after-action reports suggest that this light pole, which was located in the same flower bed in town square as the Disneyland uh, flagpole, and uh, this lighting thing was used to eliminate parades and shows that are presented in this, this part of the park. Uh, evidently, it had rusted from within and thus weakened. That's why it, it, it toppled over or struggled to stay standing as the Santa Anas began to blow. And so, out of an abundance of caution, the park's maintenance team then began making checks on all of the other light poles around Disneyland and DCA. And while we're talking about DCA, over in California Adventure, word broke earlier this week that the Beast's Library, which is located inside of the Disney Animation Building, and that also uh, is located in the Hollywoodland section at the theme park, this will be closing on December 10th of this year. And this area inside of that DCA attraction will reportedly be repurposed and eventually become home to Disney's Imagination Campus, which is this educational program that teaches students how to, to use their imaginations to solve various challenges. For those of you who haven't been in the Beast Library for a while, this attraction has been part of DCA since that theme park first opened back in February of 2001. And this is that space that magically transformed from a pristine environment the way it was before the, the beautiful enchantress placed that powerful spell on the young prince to the beast lair. And, you know, you get the slash painting and the lightning effect, I, you know, kind of a cool thing. Also, this is where you found those four stations that you could then go to determine which Disney character you were the most like. Whenever I've visited this place, I've repeatedly been told that Cogsworth is my Disney doppelganger. So just to remind you, that's a fussy, overweight guy who seems obsessed with things that people, other people really don't care about. And I don't see the resemblance to you. Anyway, again, that's closing on December 10th. So, And if you're headed to DCA, be sure and check out the Beast Library one last time before this attraction then heads off to Never to Return Land. And... If you're in this theme park that week, uh, be sure and head on down to the Paradise Gardens area. Uh, this is where you can then catch DCA's Viva Navidad street party, which for my money is one of the better pieces of live seasonal entertainment to be found in the stateside parks this time of year. Pivoting for a moment to Disney's international parks, the World of Frozen opened at Hong Kong Disneyland this past Monday, November 20th. And based on the footage that's been coming out of that theme park over the past week, this edition has been a huge hit with visitors to Lantau Island. People happily standing in two-hour-long lines for the Worlds of Frozen's two attractions, which are Wandering Oaken's Sliding Sleighs and Frozen Ever After, which is an upgraded version of a similar attraction that opened at Epcot's Norway Pavilion back in January 2016. Which brings us to this week's listener question, which comes from a Disney disc listener who likes to call themselves Olaf's more attractive brother. The letter reads, I've been looking at footage on YouTube of the Bell animatronic from the uh, Beauty and the Beast ride in Tokyo Disneyland, likewise the Anna and Elsa animatronics found in the Frozen Ever After ride at Hong Kong Disneyland, and why is it that the animatronic figures at the overseas parks are so much better looking than the ones we have in the stateside parks? If, if I were Disney corporate, I'd honestly be embarrassed at how Anna and Elsa that are featured in the old Maelstrom ride look right now. 
given the technology is obviously available to upgrade these figures, why doesn't Disney do it? It's just not very good show. Well, first of all, Olaf's more attractive brother. Thanks for writing in. And as for your it's just not very good show comment, uh, it's important to remember that the Walt Disney Company is a multinational corporation that makes most of its money off of show business. And in the term show business, the most important word is always business. And in the case of Epcot's Frozen Ever After ride, well, if Len were here today, he could tell you all about since this redo of Maelstrom first opened some seven years ago, the line has remained steady for this World Showcase attraction day in, day out. This flume ride has folks lining up to travel to up to Elsa's Dice Palace up on the North Mountain. And uh, a quick aside here, uh, the Imagineer who worked on Hong Kong Disneyland's version of Frozen Ever After early this week, talked about how in order to give that version of the flume ride a bit more of a thrill element, they, they actually increased the grade, which you slide backwards uh, down as you listen to Elsa sing Let It Go, which makes for a slightly speedier trip back down to the, the Kingdom of Arendelle. Anyway, the way things work at the Disney park these days is, well, first of all, you don't fix what ain't broke. And again, some seven years after Epcot's version of Frozen Ever After first opened, lines have remained steady for this World Showcase attraction, which is why the Imaginators have been concentrating their efforts elsewhere in this theme park. Like, for example, finishing up Phase 1 of the World Nature, World Discovery, and, and World Celebration, reimagining, redoing a, a future world, which... <sighs> the way I hear it, the majority of the construction fences that are still up in this part of that theme park uh, are supposed to come down by December 15th, which is the night that Epcot's new nighttime show, Luminous, The Story of Us, debuts. Mind you, I've also been hearing lately that out ahead of the next two Frozen films, Frozen 3 and the recently revealed to be in production Frozen 4, which, by the way, are supposed to tell one epic story, which is spread across these two films. Disney is planning on revisiting both of Epcot's Frozen-based attractions, the, the Frozen Ever After Flume Ride, as well as Anna and Elsa's Summerhouse, uh, the meet-and-greet next to the ride. Though, again, if I'm being completely honest here, what I heard mostly is it's the Summerhouse uh, side of things that will get the most TLC out ahead of uh, Frozen 3 arriving in theaters, with the priority here being that Anna and Elsa's outfits will then be updated to reflect how these characters look, how they dress in the new film of this ongoing franchise. Back now to that whole show business thing. Look, Epcot's a park that for a number of years now has gotten a lot of money thrown at its future old section to help transform this part of that park into... Well, an extension of all those show kitchens you find around World Showcase Lagoon these days. And the point here is Epcot is no longer Disney World Science and Discovery Park. It's now this resort's year-long party, Festival Central. And going forward, Epcot's just going to shift from being Disney World's... It's just going to shift to being the, the Disney World's Festival Park. The, the Festival of the Holidays will seamlessly slide into Festival of the Arts, followed by Flower and Garden Festival, and then Food and Wine, and then we just come full circle back into Festival of the Holidays. And the changes that have been made to Future World over the past five years are to 
just make sure that the party starts sooner. You will no longer have to hike all the way to World Showcase Lagoon before you can then order food at your first show kitchen or or grab yourself a craft beer. You'll be able to do that soon, within a minute of walking out from under Spaceship Earth. Now, again, just to be clear here, we did get a few other new things uh, in Epcot. We got the Journey of Water, inspired by Moana, and let's not forget about, you know, Got It Into the Galaxy Cosmic Rewind. You know, that's almost a half billion dollars worth of thrill rod right there. And in the first quarter of 2024, construction on Communicore Hall will finally be completed, and, and then we'll have a brand new performance venue in the front of this theme park. But after that, it <laughs> look, it'll be another one of Walt Disney World's theme parks that will then be getting the company's attention, the TLC. Uh, like Most likely, it'll be Animal Kingdom with its redo of, of Dino Land USA with the Encanto Indiana Jones uh, retheme, followed by the Magic Kingdom with its Beyond Thunder Mountain project. And then after that, It'll be Hollywood Studios' turn for some serious reinvestment. And look, I know, I know, we've been hearing from Josh DeMauro about a $60 billion investment in the Disney parks over the next few years. But here's the thing you need to know if you're an Epcot fan. Once Communicore Hall opens, Epcot then moves to the back of the line in Florida. Again, behind Animal Kingdom, Magic Kingdom, and the studios. So the next time you see the company spend serious money on upgrading Epcot is likely to be five to six years from now. 2028, more likely 2029. And again, if I'm being completely honest here, uh, you know, given how Disney operates these days, it's likely we'll hear about a brand new project of size being announced for Epcot in 2028 and 2029, only to then have said project open, if we're lucky, in 2030 or 2031. And look, I don't mean to be a Debbie Downer here. There will be new shows in Epcot but between now and then. There will be upgrades and changes made to attractions that are already in place, but Given the money and the time and the effort that's been spent on Epcot since 2019, it's now time for the company to focus attention on freshening up another park in its Florida portfolio, which is a polite way of saying that those Annas and Elsas in the Frozen Ever After ride in in Norway are likely to continue to have their projected faces rather than the cool ones that the animatronic figures at Tokyo Disneyland Hong Kong have. And just so you know, uh, what's interesting about those those new faces is that's because the motors and the rotors that power those faces have just gotten so much smaller and, and more efficient since Epcot's Frozen Ever After first opened in June of 2016. The technology has advanced so much since then, and, and the Imagineers just took advantage of that sudden leap at technology. And speaking of Disney princesses, when we get back from this break, I'm going to finish up my story about the Disney princesses in the parks, which, which kind of ties in with what we were just talking about. But first, this. And we're back. Okay, when we left off with last week's feature, we were talking about how after Andrew Mooney, who was the head of Disney Consumer Products at the time, 
decided to turn the individual Disney princesses into a full-fledged franchise for the company back in January 2000. And then on the heels of the decision, how the Disney parks launched the Bippity Boppity Boutiques in April of 2006. Inside of a single six-year-long span, the Disney princesses became this enormous new revenue stream for the company. Only problem was there were only eight Disney princesses. And again, back then were Snow White, Cinderella, Briar Rose, Princess Aurora, whatever you call Sleeping Beauty. Then Ariel, Belle, Jasmine, Pocahontas, and Mulan. Uh, worth noting here that early, early on, some of the uh, initial Disney Princess playsets also folded Tinkerbell into the mix. But based on the enormous success of the Disney Princess line, Disney decided to launch a second franchise that was also aimed at young girls. And that one, the Disney Fairies, uh, launched in 2005. <sighs> okay, Len and I are going to have to do a separate show on the Disney Fairies on a future Disney dish because that's one of those epic length tales with all sorts of corporate intrigue. Lots of behind-the-scenes stories that involve folks like John Lasseter and the late Brittany Murphy, not to mention at least three canceled Disney fairies films, Ring of Belief, Tinker Academy, and Tink Meets Peter. But like I said, that's going to have to wait for another time because we're trying to wrap up the Disney Princess story today. Okay. Mind you, within a year of Andrew Mooney deciding that the Disney princesses would become a full-fledged franchise for the company, the studio was at work on a brand new princess movie. This one was called Rapunzel Unbraided. Only what was different about this film is that the fairy tales that Disney had done previously were sincere. Uh, this one was intended very much to be a satire, much in the vein of, of DreamWorks Shrek, which had been released to theaters in May of 2001 and had done incredibly well at the box office. And so for a time there, Disney explored doing snarky takes on fairy tales. Uh, for example, I've, I've talked with Eric Goldberg, the genius animator behind the genie of Disney's Aladdin, not to mention the co-director of Pocahontas. And he told me about a version of the Frog Prince that he was working on at Disney Studios that was very much in the style of Jay Ward's fractured fairy tales on the old Bullwinkle TV show. Anyway, both of those projects chugged along at Disney until the company bought Pixar Animation Studios in January of 2006 for $7.4 billion. It was at this point that John Lasseter, the new head of animation for Walt Disney Studios, uh, laid down the law, saying in essence that Disney wasn't going to succeed by imitating DreamWorks. This animation studio would ultimately only find its way back to success by being sincere, not snarky. So Rapunzel Unbraided, after six years of work, was effectively tossed aside and an, a new sincere version of that same material was put in the works. Likewise, the satirical frog prince, that got pushed aside and now was reimagined as a female-driven frog princess. And boy, that project got off to a rough start. Back when Lasseter first announced it at Disney's annual shareholders meeting in New Orleans in March of 2007, John stood on stage and enthusiastically talked about how this movie's title character would be the studio's first ever African-American princess, a maid called Maddie. And look, there's no reason for us to revisit now how the African-American community responded to this announcement. 
to be blunt, they were irate that Disney's first African-American princess was going to start off as a maid. Never mind that Snow White is a scullery maid for the evil queen when her story starts in the original Disney film from 37. Or, for that matter, Cinderella was basically acting as a servant for her evil stepmother and and evil stepsisters when her film came out in 1950. You know, the African-American community was adamant. Maddie could not be a maid in the Frog Princess. And, oh, uh, since Maddie was a slave name, that had to be changed to. Uh, which is why Maddie's name was changed to Tiana, and she also, during the rewrites and the reworking of the, the original version of this film, she went from being a maid to an ambitious young woman who would one day open her own restaurant. And, oh, oh by the way, the name of this film also needed to be changed from The Frog Princess to The Princess and the Frog. <sighs> Look, a lot of pressure on that movie. Uh, and, and let's not forget that The Princess and the Frog was also supposed to be Disney's first hand-drawn film since the studio officially said that it would stop making animated features in that style back in 2003. And this was just a lot to ask of one film to deliver so much and also be entertaining and help expand the Disney Princess franchise. Which is why when, when Disney's Princess and the Frog opened in theaters in November of 2009, it didn't exactly set the world on fire. WDI effectively said, okay, we don't necessarily need to rush this one into the parks. Similarly, when Tangled came out in December of the following year, it did better at the box office, but was still weighed down by a $260 million production cost which included the cost of making the earlier aborted uh, Rapunzel and Braided that, remember, the studio spent six years working on. Uh, you know, so, again, that wasn't one that was necessarily rushed into the parks either. And two years after this, Pixar tries its hand at a princess movie. Uh, now, mind you, Brave started out as a Brenda Chapman movie, but she was eventually pushed off of the project, and, and Mark Andrew was effectively brought in as her co-director, but really took over the film. By the way, it was on this project that Pixar's reputation started to get sullied, and word began to get out about how it was more of a boys' club than, say, the innovative studio that it had been previously advertised as. All right, none of these new Princess movies were full-on monster blockbusters. They did good. So, but the park's approach to to these projects was largely, okay, let's use the old playbook. We'll do meet and greets, they'll appear in parades, eh, fairly standard stuff. And now, mind you, if we pivot back over to Disney consumer products, Tiana, Rapunzel, Merida were definitely help expanding the overall appeal of the Disney Princess product line. And since little girls and boys were regularly coming to the Disney parks and asking to meet these new Disney princesses, Well, that led to the creation of, well, not just Fantasy Fair at Disneyland, which opened where the old Carnation Gardens Plaza uh, stood in that theme park. Uh, This was in March of 2013. But six months after that, Disney Princess Fairy Tale Hall opened at the Magic Kingdom in September of 2013. That actually replaced Snow White's Scary Adventure at that theme park. And the beauty of these two locations, uh, Fantasy Fair in California and Fairytale Hall in Florida, is that they were a flex space, uh, meaning that a rotating assortment of Disney princesses could be cycled through this, these spaces and do meet and greets. 
and and that was the thinking, you know, that let's create something that doesn't have to be any one princess specific. You know, we'll, we'll, we can bring a bunch of them through. That changed just two months after Princess Fairytale Hall opened the, the Magic Kingdom of Florida. Because uh, November of 2013, that's when Frozen opened in theaters. And the world of Disney princesses changed forever. Here was the first Disney princess movie to make over a billion dollars on its initial theatrical run. And that honestly was what then made the Disney parks and the Imagineers decide, okay, this one we're not going to wait on. We're going to capitalize on this film right now, uh, which led to the sing-along that opened at Disney's uh, Hollywood Studios the following summer, not to mention Frozen Ever After opening at the Norway Pavilion in 2016. And let's not forget about the first World of Frozen Land that opened at Hong Kong Disneyland just a week or so back, with uh, a second set of Frozen rides opening at Tokyo Disney Seas as part of that theme park's Fantasy Spring. Springs expansion in 2024, and beyond that, there is the second World of Frozen that will be opening at Walt Disney Studios Park in Paris in 2025. Which brings us to the obvious question. Will we ever get to see a World of Frozen Kingdom of Arendelle at any of the stateside parks? And, well, it's worth noting that as the Disneyland Resort has been meeting with locals in regard to its Disneyland Forward project, which seeks to expand both Disneyland Park and DCA by almost a third by turning areas adjacent to the theme park that were previously designated as a parking lots and runoff space into developable land. Again, what's interesting is they haven't yet talked about that chunk of property inside of Disneyland proper between the Matterhorn and it's a small world. And this chunk of real estate, which is where Disneyland's motorboat cruises once sailed, and there's a tangle of monorail track right now, uh, not to mention that this is where Disneyland's old smoking area used to be before that closed, uh, what was that, May 1st, 2019. This has often been mentioned as a possible location for a West Coast version of the Kingdom of Arendelle. And, and with the notion that the backside of the Matterhorn, again, this is kind of an interesting conceit, the Matterhorn facing into Disneyland, strictly the part that faces Main Street USA, Tomorrowland, Adventureland, and the like, that would still be Matterhorn Mountain. On the other hand, if you were standing in Fantasyland on your way to, say, Mickey's Toontown, and you look back on this side, the Matterhorn would now be North Mountain, where Elsa's Ice Palace was located. In fact, Hong Kong actually features a forced perspective miniature version of Elsa's Ice Palace, and they I guess they were talking about doing much the same thing in Anaheim. But uh, anyway, <laughs> what's going to drive this, folks, is Frozen 3 and Frozen 4. And if they prove to be like the two films that preceded them, now remember, uh, Frozen 1 made $1.2 billion worldwide in 2013 and 2014. Frozen 2, on the other hand, made $1.4 billion worldwide in 2019 and 2020. Should they be, these, these upcoming two films, be that successful? What I'm hearing is Anaheim will then get its own World of Frozen. <sighs> but 
that will also have to be on the other side of the Kingdom of Arendelle that, again, is going to open at Walt Disney Studios Park in Paris in 2025. And who knows, between now and then, a brand new movie featuring an entirely different Disney princess may be released to theaters. Uh, you know, it's worth noting that just last week, out ahead of the release of Disney's Wish, Jennifer Lee, the, the head of Walt Disney Animation Studios, mentioned that they have 10 different movies in development at this time. So long story short, folks, the tale of Disney princesses in the park may not be over just yet. These things take time. Uh, you know, after all, uh, Princess and the Frog was originally released to theaters in November of 2009. It wasn't until 10 years later in 2019 that Imagineering first began exploring the idea of turning Splash Mountain in California and Florida into Tiana's Bayou Adventure. And, you know, let's not forget about the Tangled Ride that's, that will be opening as part of Fantasy Springs at Tokyo Disney Seas next year, and the Tangled Spinner that will open at Walt Disney Studios Park in Paris in late 2024, 2025. I mean, what is it the fairy godmother says in, in Cinderella? Even miracles take a little time. So hang in there. More Disney princess-related park is definitely headed into the parks, and some of that stuff will be stateside. Anyway, that is going to do it for this week's show. And provided that he doesn't get tripped up by the TSA, Len should be back behind the mic in time for next week's Disney Dish. If you'd like to show your support for this podcast, please head on over to Patreon and subscribe. We're posting exclusive content over there almost every week now. And... I think that's going to do it for today's show. You can help support these shows and Jim Hill Media by subscribing over on Patreon, uh, patreon.com backslash Jim Hill Media. On next week's show, Len and I will look back at this year's Ginger Snap Challenge and also let you know what we thought of Jollywood Nights at Disney's Hollywood Studios. Anyway, you can find more of Mr. Testa at touringplans.com and more of me at jimhillmedia.com. Oh, and if you could do Len and I a favor, please swing by iTunes and rate our show. More to the point, tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Len, this is Jim, and we will see you on our next show. <laughs>